If, you have, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Chad, and my wife, Heliana, and I have had the joy of being members here at Elmwood for about six months now, and it is a great privilege to gather together at Elmwood with each of you to worship the Lord this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, you make each one of us clean. Please open our hearts and minds to what you have to teach us today. Help us to receive and understand your word as we look at the teachings of Jesus and to understand that it is not what goes into our mouth that makes us unclean, but rather sin that comes out from within that makes us unclean. Transform us more and more into a people of integrity who obey your word and find our deepest source of cleansing in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We are all a people of tradition. We might not always think of it in those terms, but it's true. And some of us may be more comfortable with the idea of being called people of tradition than others. And some of us also might be maybe a little more free-spirited. And still others might hear that phrase and think, nah, that really doesn't describe me at all. In fact, others of you might be even a bit taken aback by the idea of being called tradition. And thinking like, come on, Chad, (laughs) read the room a little bit. (laughs) We are in the evangelical free church after all, right? I mean, if there's one thing we don't do a whole lot of here at Elmwood, it's tradition, right? If you're coming from that place this morning, I hear you. And if you're uncomfortable with the idea of being called tradition, sometimes we recognize that tradition can be a bit of a dirty word in the church. Because human tradition has been a source of false teaching or even abuse in the history of the church. And if that's where you're coming from this morning, please hear me out for a minute because it's going to get better. In preparing this message, I had the opportunity to listen to a sermon that was given previously by Pastor Matt on this text from Mark 7. And he came up with a very helpful uh, definition of tradition that broadens the scope of what tradition is. His definition goes like this, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here. Tradition is any agreed upon or rehearsed belief or a repeated ritual. It's the things that we do over and over again, sometimes without even thinking about it. And when we frame it this way, we realize that we are all a people of tradition. And some of our good traditions can look something like this. Most of us are in the habit, or at least I hope so, that before we come to church on Sunday morning, we regularly brush our teeth. Right? And somehow we've gotten into this belief and practice that by taking a little rubber stick with some plastic bristles on it and putting some minty goop on it and scrubbing our teeth twice a day, that that helps us have good breath, it makes us feel presentable, and it helps us have good dental hygiene. Another tradition we have is we we probably bathe before we come to church on Sunday morning, right? We take a shower, we wash ourselves, we put on nice clothes, because we want to look presentable, and we want to be clean, and we want to smell nice. And then there's the really important traditions that we have. Like, for some of us, before we sit down to gather together for worship in church on Sunday morning, we must have at least 
one cup of coffee. For some of us, maybe two or three, (laughs) right? My wife and I also have a family tradition on Sunday afternoons that we do to practice Sabbath. We go to worship and church on Sunday morning, and when we get home from church, we have what we call Sunday introvert recharge time. (laughs) Now, we're pretty introverted people, and then we get to be alone, (laughs) and it's quiet. (laughs) And my wife will get home, and she'll immediately get into her comfy clothes, and she'll make a giant bowl of popcorn, and then she'll eat a big old bowl of ice cream, and then she'll take a nice long nap, and then she'll spend the rest of the evening on YouTube, probably watching something Disney-related. When I get home from church, I like to have a pizza. And when I'm done eating a pizza, I like to sit down to watch a movie. And usually about 20 minutes into that movie, I fall asleep on the couch, and then I have to rewind and go back to where I was. Some of us have family gatherings where we uh, have traditions, and we even have traditions here at Elmwood where we regularly sing worship songs together and we celebrate communion on a regular basis. So we are all a people of tradition, and we all know that tradition has also a shadow side to it. So I'm going to make a distinction this morning between tradition on the one hand and what I call traditionalism on the other, where we take things too far. In traditionalism, we can become rigid and inflexible. And we can even become legalistic. We can even experience deep disappointment because of the way things are supposed to be. And our religious experiences can become routine or even begin to lose their meaning. And when we violate the traditions that someone else holds near and dear, sometimes we can get a very strong reaction. I want to tell you a story about a time when I unintentionally violated someone else's tradition. I was, uh, had the opportunity when I was in college at Northwestern to study in the land of Israel for about a month. And we were taking a class on the history and geography of the lands of the Bible. And we were studying for a final exam in the modern city of Jerusalem outside of a coffee shop. And this coffee shop was a Jewish coffee shop that was considered a kosher space. And if you don't know what kosher is, it's a Hebrew word meaning clean that designates a space or a food that is in compliance with Jewish dietary laws and is considered acceptable to eat or drink. And while we were studying, I got hungry, so I went across the street and I bought a sandwich. But I didn't know that what I bought according to the strictest tradition of kosher law, or tradition, was not kosher. And then I walked into the coffee shop, into a kosher space, to to grab a napkin. You ever seen an old Western movie where the new guy walks into the saloon and everything stops and the music stops and every head turns? That's what happened to me. And a Jewish man walked up to me and very politely but firmly informed me of the error of my ways and then proceeded to chase me out of that space at the end of a broom. (laughs) So sometimes when we violate the traditions that others hold to be sacred, we can receive a strong reaction. Tradition is good, but traditionalism will make us both miserable people and perhaps even miserable people to be around. 
And in our passage today, we see Jesus coming face to face with the traditions of the religious leaders. And the first thing we see in this passage, in his interaction with the Pharisees, is the competing priorities of God's word on the one hand and human tradition on the other. Now let me set the scene for how this conflict arose. The Pharisees and the religious leaders left Jerusalem and they came up to the region of Galilee some 80 or 90 miles away to confront Jesus about some of the things that he had been teaching. And while they're speaking with Jesus, they notice that at least one of his disciples begins to eat a meal without washing their hands first. And that violated the traditions of the elders, as we read in this text. And the tradition of the elders was that they had to wash their hands with a ceremonial washing, as we read in the text. And they have many other traditions like that, washing kettles and bowls and cups and all sorts of things like that. And the main crux of the problem here is that what they saw as their evolving oral tradition that began to be written down, known as the tradition of the elders, began to be seen with greater and greater authority. In fact, the Jewish scholar and historian Josephus went so far as to suggest that the Pharisees accepted the evolving oral law as equally authoritative with the Torah. And they were trying to protect and preserve the Torah by doing this. They wanted to honor the Torah by setting up rules that would keep a person from breaking the Torah. But eventually, these human traditions came into conflict with the Torah law itself. And so, when they were following their traditions, and by doing so, breaking the law of God, Jesus rebukes them, connecting their hypocrisy to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, which says, These people come near to me with their mouths, and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is merely based on human rules that they have been taught. And then Jesus goes on to give them an example of how they were doing this sort of thing. So in Mark chapter 7, Jesus picks up on this sort of thing when he criticizes the way in which they were declaring something to be Corban. Now, I don't want to get too much into the details or the weeds here, but Corban is a Hebrew word that got borrowed into Greek, that got borrowed into English, and then just sits in our English Bible untranslated. But the core crux of it is this, and there's many interpretations about it, and there's a great deal of scholarly ink that has been spilt trying to determine exactly what the details of this are. But here's the gist. When someone among the Jewish people would declare something to be Corban, they were dedicating that portion of their possessions to the temple for the purposes of temple worship, and by extension, were dedicating their possessions to God. So if someone owned a sheep or a goat or another animal used for sacrifices in the temple and decided to declare that animal for this kind of temple use, then this animal could not be sold for any other purpose because the act of dedicating the animal to God was taken with an oath, and that oath was considered binding. And under some circumstances, a person could dedicate their possessions to God and to the temple by declaring it Corban, but would not have to give it over to the temple until later, um, until it was truly needed for a sacrifice. Please remember that thought, because we're going to come back to it in a minute. 
Now, in the Jewish communities of Jesus' day, there's also an expectation of what parents did with their children. And the life of the family would go something like this. Parents have kids. They raise their children. They clothe them. They feed them. They educate them. And they care for them until they are grown. And then one day, when the children are adults and they have their own spouses and their own children, their parents become elderly and they have a harder time getting around. So when the adult children are grown, they have the opportunity to reciprocate back to their parents and give generously to their parents to meet their needs later in life. You see, back then, there was no such thing as social security. And there was no Medicare or Medicaid. And there was no 401k retirement fund. If you were an elderly person, your sense of financial security likely came from your children who took over some of the responsibilities of caring for the family. And this was a way of honoring one's father and mother so that obeying the commands of God and the law that Jesus quotes in this passage would look like this. Jesus tells the religious leaders, Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Now, in this context, we could possibly translate this as anyone who dishonors their father or mother is to be put to death. That is how serious a matter it was to honor one's father and mother in the commands of God. In other words, this was a weighty matter of the law in the eyes of God to care for one's mother and father. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to say that anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. With this in mind, here's the rub of what happened when someone in Jesus' day followed the traditions of the elders in declaring something to be Corban. When the time came for children to honor their father and mother by selling some of their possessions in order to raise money to give to their parents and meet their needs, if they followed the tradition of the elders, they could appear to be very devoutly religious by giving of their possessions and looking like they're really, really devoted to God. It's like, see, I'm giving all that I have to God. I'm devoting it to him. And under these circumstances, The tradition of the elders allowed a Jewish person to appear clean on the outside by dedicating their possessions to God, but at the same time not allowing them to give their money to their parents in order to care for their parents because the possessions had already declared Corbin. In this way, people were following the tradition of the elders by keeping their commitment and declaring their possessions to belong to God and violating the commands of God by refusing to honor and care for their own family. So Jesus calls them out for their blatant hypocrisy. By honoring God with their lips, by dedicating their possessions to God, but their hearts are far from God when they violate his commands in the law by refusing to honor their father and mother by meeting their needs. And then Jesus finishes his criticism of the religious leaders by saying, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. In other words, this was just one example of how the religious leaders were confronting Jesus and 
disobeying the commands of God and instead upholding their human traditions. And they did many things like this that were ultimately motivated by greed and by selfishness and by self-aggrandizement rather than loving God and neighbor by willingly giving of their possessions, obeying God's commands in the Torah by generously giving of their wealth to care for their family. And after a scathing rebuke of the religious leaders, Jesus then addresses the crowds who are there watching. So he's turning away from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he addresses the crowd of Jewish people that were gathering, watching this confrontation take place. And the second thing we see in this passage is the true depth of our defilement. This points to a far deeper kind of defilement that does not come from touching something unclean or failing to wash our hands. The defilement itself comes from within us. So if the defilement came from out there, it would be relatively easy to remain ritually clean. You follow the rules, you do all the proper washings, and ta-da, you're clean. But Jesus' point is that the defilement does not come from out there. Not even the massive amount of washing done by the most devout religious leader could bring about the kind of cleansing that they truly needed. The text says this, Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is written out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come, including sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, Malice, deceit, lewdness, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. See, this need for inner cleansing is a far greater concern to Jesus. And while the religious leaders are questioning the integrity of his disciples, and by extension, they're questioning the credibility of Jesus as their teacher when they ate with unwashed hands, Jesus' concern for the people is that they recognize that evil thoughts and words and deeds come from within a sinful heart. And it is this sinful heart that defiles a person. And it is this very heart of sin that is their greatest source of guilt, from which comes their greatest source of need for cleansing and forgiveness. And since they're unable to provide for themselves this need for inner cleansing on their own, This can leave the the crowds of Jewish people and we ourselves feeling utterly hopeless. I mean, the Pharisees, with all of their obedience, were only washing the outside of the cup. And they can't be clean? Then what hope is there for the ordinary Jewish person or for any of us who do not follow all of these washings? If the defilement comes from within the human heart, what hope do we have to become clean? So this passage shows us not only the depth of our defilement, but also the only source of true cleansing, namely Jesus himself. You see, Jesus in his atoning work on the cross offers the ultimate inward cleansing we so desperately need to redeem us from our sins and to reconcile us to our holy God who desires to provide us with forgiveness and cleansing 
and redemption that is found exclusively in him. Jesus not only cleanses us from sin, he also helps us to begin to make good decisions, begin to clean up our life and become more Christ-like as we are renewed in our inner being day by day by the Holy Spirit. Let's come back to the Pharisees and the religious leaders for a minute. When they ask Jesus why his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat, is their tradition of washing a bad tradition? Their tradition was driven by a desire to obey God's commands, by being extra careful to obey God's laws. And the Old Testament law did prescribe that the Levite priests were to wash their hands and wash their feet and perform many types of washings as part of fulfilling their priestly duties. But these ceremonial washings did not apply to all Jewish people. So the heart of the religious leaders was not necessarily bad in upholding their traditions of washing. It is only when their traditions cause them to disobey God's commands that they get, their traditions get them into trouble. And the same is true for us. We have many traditions and habits that we practice, and not all of them are bad. In fact, many of them are good and helpful, like brushing our hands and or brushing our teeth and washing our hands. It is very helpful for us to take a step back every once in a while and test our own traditions biblically and to make sure that the things that we practice on a regular basis are in keeping with Scripture. So before we're too hard on the religious leaders and brand them as the bad guys just because Jesus criticized them here, it is helpful for us to step back and realize perhaps we're not so terribly different. Sometimes it's helpful for us to take a little bit of time and examine ourselves and our own practices. And I think it's safe to say that all of us in this room recognize that even though we went through several kinds of washing before we came to church this morning, like showering and brushing our teeth, that these outward washings are not enough. We're not here at church this morning because we think we have it all together. On the contrary, nor do any of us believe that washing ourselves on the outside is sufficient to cleanse us from our sins. On the contrary, we are here to worship the Lord and to take time to repent of our sins while recognizing that we are in desperate need of an inner cleansing that only Jesus can provide. Let's sit with that for a minute. My encouragement for us this morning is to hear the way in which Jesus redirects us toward the need for an inner cleansing from sin. What things have we said or done that come from within which make us unclean in God's sight? Jesus lists many things that come from within and make us unclean. And he says, all of these evils come from inside and defile a person. The thing about Jesus as a cleanser from sin is that he does more than helping us to realize that our sinfulness that defiles comes from within. He also provides the only true way to deal with it. See, as we've been going through the book of Mark, we've seen many examples of how Jesus' ministry involves touching people who are sick or who have leprosy, or who are demon-possessed, people who are unclean and defiled, or even those who are dead. And under normal circumstances, under the law, 
by doing some of these things, it would make that person who touched the sick person or the dead person ritually unclean. Therefore, the religious leaders felt that they had cause to question the ritual purity of Jesus and his disciples. And yet when Jesus, who is without sin and is clean and righteous, touches the unclean person, they become healed. They become clean. Think of the woman with an issue of blood who had the faith in Jesus to be healed. She brazenly went into the crowd of people around Jesus and risked making Jesus and everyone she touched ritually unclean. She was desperate to be healed of her infirmity that she had suffered for years. And when she just touched the hem of his robes, she was healed from her infirmity. And rather than her touch making others unclean, Jesus makes her whole. Or think of, in other gospel accounts, the paralytic who was lowered through the roof to Jesus when the house was so full that his friends couldn't get him close to Jesus. When he saw that these people had the faith for this paralytic man to be made well, Jesus' first words to this man were, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus did far more than provide ritual cleansing needed to allow these people to be presented in the temple and declared ritually clean. He healed them of their infirmity. He made them clean. And he cleanses them from sin by caring for the whole person at the deepest level. So as we gather together around the communion table today, let us remember that Jesus has already finished his work on the cross to make us clean and blameless before him. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Therefore, as we prepare our hearts to transition into a time of worship through receiving the elements of communion, let us reflect on our own sinfulness that comes from within to confess our sins to God with sincere hearts of repentance and then receive the gift of being fed at the Lord's table, recognizing that Jesus' finished work on the cross on our behalf is all that is needed to make us truly clean. So as we come together around the communion table, let's take a few moments of silence to confess our sins to God. And then I'll uh, proceed with the communion liturgy.